Hello, I'm Stephen Vassiani, and I'll be talking for about 40 minutes on the subject Human Rights Law in the Commonwealth Caribbean. This is, of course, a, a, a very wide topic, and it's wide in two respects. Uh, first of all, it encompasses the situation in at least 12 countries, the countries which make up the uh, Commonwealth Caribbean. And it's wide also because the topic of human rights covers so many different issues of fundamental importance to states. So perhaps first of all, I should uh, delineate, delineate uh, what I wish to say. Uh, the Commonwealth Caribbean is made up of 12 independent countries. Uh, Antigua and Barbuda, Barbados, Belize, Jamaica, Guyana, Grenada, St. Kitts Nevis, St. Vincent, St. Lucia, Trinidad and Tobago, and the Bahamas. And these countries all share a common tradition in the sense that they are uh, former British colonies, and so they have the British common law system as their background. Um, at the same time, these countries are small, economically impoverished countries, which therefore encounter challenges in seeking to uh, implement human rights norms. But they have done well in, in the face of the challenges. And so one of the, the items in, in my presentation today will be uh, the extent to which Commonwealth Caribbean countries have sought to overcome challenges they face in respect of human rights implementation. Uh, in respect of the, the broad area of human rights, I intend to look specifically at the civil and political rights recognized within uh, the United Nations system, and also to some extent the economic, social, and cultural rights also recognized within the UN framework. Um, so here's my agenda today. Uh, first of all, we look at the significance of human rights law in Caribbean societies. Uh, this will encompass issues such as uh, an overview of the international commitments undertaken by Caribbean states. Uh, we look at the relationship between international human rights law on one level and domestic law in the Caribbean at another level. And then we will consider the institutions that help to determine uh, how human rights law is implemented within the Caribbean. Uh, this will be followed by an examination of domestic human rights rules, the sources and the content of those rules as they are applied in the Caribbean. And finally, I would like us to consider some particular human rights in the Caribbean and the extent to which those rights are recognized. Uh, th this last topic will encompass uh, looking briefly at matters such as the right to life, death penalty, uh, issues arising from that, inhuman or degrading punishment or treatment, uh, freedom of movement, freedom of expression, and, and so on. So then, uh, as a general matter, there's the question, to what extent are human rights norms recognized in the Caribbean? Most Caribbean states, in fact all Commonwealth Caribbean states, maintain that they are in the mainstream of the human rights debate in the world. Uh, they maintain that they have a set of written human rights rules safeguarded by their constitutions and that 
The courts in the country are mandated to ensure that these rules are fully recognized in practice. So they say they are in the mainstream. Um, they also come to the human rights debate from a, a universalist perspective. In other words, Caribbean countries don't say we are different from other countries in respect of the recognition of human rights. Rather, they maintain that they seek to apply human rights norms that are universally recognized in UN instruments. And I'll say some more about the UN instruments in, in a little while. The Caribbean states also say that they have a, res a history of respect for uh, constitutionalism and for democracy. So they maintain that when they recognize human rights in practice, they are simply recognizing the will of the people, that the will of the people is reflected in their constitutional provisions. Now, at the international level, there are, of course, a number of well-known instruments, uh, largely coming from the U United Nations system. Uh, there is, for example, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the ICCPR. There is the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, the ICSCR. And these two treaties uh, constitute the legal form of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948. And so uh, it is of importance to Caribbean states that uh, they are parties to uh, these two main treaties that constitute binding commitments for, for more than 100 countries in the world. There are also optional protocols to these uh, two treaties. So there is, for example, the first optional protocol to the ICCPR and the second optional protocol to the ICCPR. Um, there is also the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, and a number of regional treaties which also set out commitments uh, to be followed by states. So in the Caribbean, there is a constant debate about the extent to which um, Caribbean states have ratified and should ratify these various uh, United Nations-based conventions. The ICCPR, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which, which talks about the right to life, freedom from inhuman or degrading treatment, freedom of thought, consent, and religion, uh, and such rights, um, is, has been ratified by eight of the 12 Commonwealth Caribbean states. So a significant majority of the uh, Commonwealth Caribbean states are party to the Central United Nations Treaty. And if you look at the rate of ratification across the world and compare it, what you'd find, eight out of 12 is about 66 and two thirds percent. Um, what you'd find is that this is about average for the countries of the world. About two thirds of the countries of the world have ratified this convention. Uh, similarly, for the ICSCR, uh, there are seven or eight Caribbean countries which are parties. Um, but when we look at the optional protocols, we see a different picture. The first optional protocol to the ICCPR is a treaty which allows individuals uh, the right to petition 
uh, the United Nations Human Rights Committee for uh, relief in respect of human rights matters. And you, one would think that um, this is an important way in which human rights are given full effect. However, only two Commonwealth Caribbean countries are party to the optional protocol. And there is uh, an important reason for this, I believe, and it, it is uh, that Commonwealth Caribbean states have had issues in respect of uh, the death penalty and have found that they cannot fully respect the terms of domestic law uh, when they pursue the remedies that are contemplated by the first optional protocol. And I'll come back to that in a little while. The second optional protocol to the ICCR uh, addresses the question of the death penalty um, directly and indicates that states which are a party should not have the death penalty. But the Caribbean states do have the death penalty uh, on their books and so none of the Caribbean states are party to the second optional protocol. In respect of the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, the CEDAW, uh, Caribbean states are unanimously members of that, are unanimously parties to that treaty. And similarly, in respect of the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, 11 of the 12 Caribbean states are parties. So that this picture tends to highlight the fact that Caribbean states, um, where they can, seek to become parties to the main international instruments concerning human rights. And this is part of the argument put forward by the states that they are in the mainstream. In respect of regional human rights treaties, there, there is one particular convention that I should mention, and it is the American Convention on Human Rights, uh, or the Pact of San Jose. And um, only four Caribbean states are party to, to this treaty. Um, and I think the reason for the rel relatively small number has to do more with history than with attitude. And it is that Caribbean states, uh, quite a few of them, feel that having committed themselves to the ICCPR and the ISSCR, uh, there is no strong motive for them to become party to the regional treaties which say similar things to um, the ICCPR and the ICCR. There may be other reasons as well, and we might touch on some um, in the course of this lecture. So at the international level then, there is a fair degree of commitment. Um, the next question, however, is how are these international commitments translated onto the domestic level, onto the domestic plane? Because it's one thing to <coughs> adhere to human rights rules on the international plane, but quite another to ensure that these rights are respected in practice on the domestic plane. As part of this, we should note that Caribbean states are what the international lawyers call dualist states. This simply means that even when you ratify a convention, the convention rules do not become automatically uh, part of your domestic law. 
there needs to be a separate step so that each Commonwealth Caribbean state uh, is required to pass legislation to give effect to the international commitments that they have accepted in the treaties. This, this idea that we are dualist states uh, finds considerable support in the jurisprudence in the Caribbean. Uh, the, the highest court of most of the Caribbean states, as we'll see, is the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, and there is a significant line of cases from the uh, Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, uh, which indicates that you have to pass domestic legislation to give full effect to your treaty commitments. Uh, one case that I would mention in passing is Chong Chai Chong and the Queen, which is a decision of the Privy Council um, from over 70 years ago, which, which sets out that basic principle. Um, that is in respect of treaties. However, there are instances in which rules in a treaty become rules of customary international law. See the Nazi continental shelf cases, for example, or the Nicaragua case as authority for, for this proposition. So a question arises, what about rules of customary law? Do these rules automatically become a part of Caribbean law? And the answer would seem to be a, a little ambiguous. Um, it, the answer might be perhaps. Uh, there is an old English case called Aaron Keane, which indicates that rules of customary law um, can become part of the domestic law or the common law of England. And so there is a view that Aaron Keane could be translated into the soil of the Caribbean, so to speak, and that would represent the law, that rules of customary law become binding in the Caribbean. And this would be applicable to human rights rules. However, there is no case in the Caribbean which firmly indicates that rules of customary law uh, constitute part of domestic law. And, and that's why I say the answer then is, is perhaps. In practical terms, um, there are no known instances in which an individual has been able to say that my fundamental human rights, which are part of customary law, are being violated, and our domestic court should therefore um, seek to have the customary rules respected. So I think we can proceed on the assumption then that the Caribbean states are dualist states. There, there's international law at one level and then there's domestic law. And the domestic law uh, needs to be reflected in legislation for it to have effect on individuals in the Caribbean. Now to the institutions that uh, address the question of human rights in the Commonwealth Caribbean. There are, of course, uh, the courts, and there is the st standard hierarchy of courts throughout the Caribbean. So you have uh, the resident magistrate's court, uh, or the high court, as the court of first instance. Then there is the court of appeal, and that's followed higher up the hierarchy by the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. So it's High Court, Supreme Court, or Resident Magistrates Court at first instance, Court of Appeal, then Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. Um, 
That's true for 10 of the 12 Commonwealth Caribbean states. For two of the 12, Guyana and Barbados, the final court, the highest court, is no longer the Judicial Privy Committee of the Privy Council, but rather the Caribbean Court of Justice. And the Caribbean Court of Justice represents an attempt on the part of Caribbean states to replace the Privy Council as the final court of appeal with, with the Caribbean Court of Justice. But this process is still ongoing and states have not completed it, uh, obviously. And so um, we, we now have two final courts depending on which Caribbean country is involved. But the courts are central to res ensuring respect for human rights throughout the Caribbean. In addition to the courts, there are um, standard human rights bodies. So the UN Human Rights Committee, for example, uh, still maintains a monitoring uh, role in respect of petitions from the two states that are still party to the uh, first optional protocol, and also a monitoring role generally in respect of uh, Caribbean states and, and all other states indeed. Um, so that, at least in theory, states are to report every five years to the UN Human Rights Committee on the situation concerning human rights within their territory. And some Caribbean states have from time to time made these reports. So that the UN Human Rights Committee constitutes an important institution in monitoring and safeguarding human rights in the Commonwealth Caribbean. Still with respect to the UN system, there are of course uh, special rapporteurs who visit the Caribbean from time to time and prepare reports on particular aspects of human rights protection. So for example, um, late last year there, there was a visit to Jamaica of the special rapporteur on um, torture and inhuman or degrading punishment or treatment. And his report is an important uh, indication of the state of human rights in one particular area uh, in Jamaica, the prison system um, to be more specific. So there is the UN uh, position as at the institutional level, which is important. Um, it's increasingly important as well uh, to know that the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights has become uh, an institution which is approached by individuals within the Commonwealth Caribbean for relief. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights with respect to the four countries that are party to the American Convention on Human Rights, uh, the Inter-American Inter Commission um, hears petitions from individuals and issues uh, recommendations in respect of those petitions. Now, these recommendations are not binding as uh, rules of law, but they exercise considerable influence in respect of the executive in the Commonwealth Caribbean countries. There is often an attempt to show respect for the recommendations of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. 
At institutional level as well, there is uh, an active NGO movement in some of the Commonwealth Caribbean countries. And in fact, in some instances, it's the NGOs that actually will uh, stimulate the individuals to take their petitions to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights or to the UN Human Rights Committee. And the NGOs will be active in reporting on their perception of the human rights situation in the individual countries. So that is an important development which I would say has gained prominence in the Caribbean over the last 10 or 20 years. Now, these institutions are in the nature of things sometimes pulling in different directions so that the perception taken by the courts on a human rights matter may well be different ultimately from the perception taken by the NGO and the perception taken by the um, UN human rights authorities or the inter-American human rights authorities. But that is the nature of uh, human rights monitoring and, uh, and observation, that there is a dialectic at play, there are different perceptions, and one hopes that coming out of these tensions and differences of view, uh, the individual will um, be all the better for it. Turning now to the sources of uh, human rights law in the Caribbean. At the international level, I've already mentioned the ICCPR, the ISSCR, the American Convention on Human Rights, the optional protocols. But at the national level, the human rights rules are safeguarded, first of all, in constitutional provisions and Secondly, in legislation. Thirdly, there is the common law. So that in order to understand any particular human rights question, one has to look at constitutional provisions, legislation, and cases decided by judges within the common law system. At the level of the constitution, each Commonwealth Caribbean country has a chapter in its constitution Ent entitled Fundamental Rights and Freedoms. And these fundamental rights and freedoms are listed with, with qualifications. But it's fair to say that these fundamental rights and freedoms are uniformly this, are the same throughout the Caribbean. Um, and part of the reason for this, of course, is the British heritage. Because historically what happened was that the British sought to apply the rules in the European Convention on Human Rights of 1950 in their procedures for establishing constitutions for independent Caribbean states. So the rights that were in the European Convention were essentially transferred into the Commonwealth Caribbean constitutions. So that if you look at the European Convention on Human Rights, right to life, freedom from inhuman or degrading punishment or treatment, freedom of movement, freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. If you look at those, civil and political rights, and you compare them to the rules in the Commonwealth Caribbean constitutions, uh, you will be struck by the similarity. Uh, and this is helpful in some senses because it's then possible also to look at the jurisprudence 
that exists in respect of the European Convention uh, as a guide to the direction in which the jurisprudence in the Caribbean might take, or as a guide to the direction in which the jurisprudence ought not to take. Uh, it, it, it's there as a guide. So the constitutional safeguards are of crucial importance. They are written down. They are roughly all the same. They are based on the European Convention on Human Rights. And they are regarded by the courts as, as active, as rules to be respected. Now, what are some of these rights? Well, as I've mentioned, the civil and political rights constitute uh, an important part of the constitution, of the um, rules in the Caribbean. So, as I've said, right to life, freedom from inhuman or degrading punishment or treatment, freedom of thought, conscience, and, and religion, freedom of expression, the right to a fair trial, and, and non-discrimination on certain grounds. These are the main um, rules that are set out in the fundamental rights and freedoms provisions of our constitutions. <clears throat> it should also be noted that there are relatively few economic, social, and cultural rights set out in Caribbean constitutions. This goes back again to the European Convention on Human Rights, where originally there were relatively few um, economic, social, and cultural rights recognized. And in some senses, it represents a departure from the UN approach, which, which stresses uh, economic, social, and cultural rights in the ICE-SCR. Um, but this is not to say that Caribbean states do not show respect for economic, social, and cultural rights. On the contrary, in the legislation of almost all of the Caribbean states, and in the practice, there is a distinct effort, as a matter of policy, to ensure that economic, social, and cultural rights are respected. So, for example, the right to education um, is fully recognized in all of the Caribbean states at the primary level. And at the secondary level, almost all of the Caribbean states also have um, systems in which the government pays for secondary education. And certainly with respect to Barbados and Trinidad and Tobago, uh, this is carried through to the tertiary level, where most tertiary studies are funded in large part by the state. So that there is recognition in practice for some economic, social, and cultural rights. There is also a strong recognition for trade union rights and, and labor-related rights. There is, to be fair, uh, no, right to no right to employment, but this is perhaps in inevitable given the economic circumstances in the region. But there, are, uh, there is a long history, a long tradition of respecting uh, the trade union movement. And in fact, the trade union movement has a fair degree of political power in most of these countries. And many of the early uh, post-independence leaders in these countries uh, emerged from the trade union movement. So there is a strong uh, labor law framework within the Commonwealth Caribbean countries. Now, there are 
So against this background then of a fair degree of recognition for civil and political rights at the constitutional level and recognition for economic, social and cultural rights in legislation, um, we can conclude that Caribbean countries, when they say they are in the mainstream, they are certainly making an effort to be within the mainstream and some of these rights are recognized. But it's fair to say that there are challenges, and I, I should note some of these challenges uh, to show how the system actually uh, contends with challenges in the effort to respect the human rights of individuals. Uh, one challenge, analytically, emerges from the terms of the constitutions themselves, because although the constitution set out these rights, these are not absolute rights. You, you don't have the freedom of expression in all circumstances, nor do you have freedom of movement in all circumstances. Um, so how does the co Constitution in each of these states modify these rights? In large part, it's through a provision which says that you, your constitutional rights must be recognized with reasonable regard to the rights of other persons or with reasonable regard to public order, security or public safety, public health, and public morality. Now, the line between respect for human rights and respect for uh, public order or security is one that is sometimes the subject of contention. And so one would expect that there have been debates about this in the Caribbean as there have been in other jurisdictions of the world. Um, I think that if you look at the, the criticisms from NGOs and from civil society more generally, what you would find is that there is an acceptance of the need to balance human individual human rights with public order, public health, and so on. Uh, but public morality sometimes comes up for question because your morality and the morality of your neighbor might differ. And then the question is, why should the neighbor's morality prevail over yours um, when nobody is being injured? So there is that debate about the extent to which we can recognize public morality in the practice of human rights law. The point to note, though, is that the constitutions actually incorporate public morality at this time. And some people see that as a challenge as a restriction on human freedom. Another challenge that has been highlighted in the literature and in practice concerns what is called the savings clause in some Commonwealth Caribbean constitutions. In its strongest form, the savings clause is a provision which says that notwithstanding the rights that you have in this constitution, if there was a rule of law that existed before independence, that rule of law will remain valid after independence, even if that rule of law is inconsistent with the Constitution. So, for instance, um, there is the safeguard of freedom of religion. And some people say that freedom of religion um, might 
require respect for certain religious practices um, and that the law shouldn't ban certain relig religious practices. But what the Savings Clause says is, if the law banned the religious practice before independence, then the ban must remain uh, until Parliament decides to, to change it. Uh, this, in effect, means that judges cannot allow, cannot develop the law. The law cannot evolve uh, if it existed before independence. It is frozen in pre-independence terms. And so this has been the subject of considerable discussion. And it, it, it must be said, the Savings Clause applies in respect of Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad and Tobago, um, in, the, in the pure form of pre-independence laws shall remain valid. In some countries, for example in Belize, the rule was the pre-independence law will remain valid for a period of time, that's five years, and after that judges will be free to exercise discretion as to whether these rules are valid or not. Um, so there are different forms of the savings clause. But in its, in its pure form, it seems to restrict the freedom to uh, bring about changes in Caribbean law in human rights matters. Uh, perhaps I could give a, a, a specific example. Flogging and whipping. In the Caribbean, um, pre-independence law has safeguarded um, the possibility of people being punished by flogging and whipping. The constitutions, however, prohibit inhuman or degrading punishment or treatment. And so the question arises, isn't flogging inhuman or degrading punishment or treatment? Well, if you have the savings clause, the answer is that question cannot be answered by a judge because the law existed before independence, so the law has to remain in place post-independence. And the way to change the law, if the society wants it, wants it to be changed, is through legislation, not by judges saying that the law has evolved over time. Uh, so, so that's an example of how the uh, savings clause seeks to freeze the law in its pre-independence uh, mode. And there are cases to this effect. Um, R and Noel Samuda from Jamaica. Um, the, mat uh, the matter has gone to the UN Human Rights Committee. And so in Errol Price versus Jamaica, for example, the UN Human Rights Committee has said that current Jamaican laws in respect of flogging and whipping uh, constitute a violation of Article 7 of the ICCPR and they have recommended changes. And this is true in respect of other Caribbean countries as well. Um, so the savings clause constitute a, a challenge and it, it's part of the dialectic as to how we could change uh, the savings clauses. Uh, Jamaica currently has a draft bill to change the constitution in respect of human rights matters at the Charter of Rights and one of the changes to be implemented if the Charter of Rights comes into force is the removal of the savings clause in respect of pre-independence legislation. 
There are other challenges that should be noted in respect of human rights uh, protection and promotion in the Caribbean. And one of, the, one of these other challenges is what I regard as so a big social challenge. Caribbean societies ha tend to have high murder rates. Uh, this is especially true of Jamaica, but it is also true of Trinidad and Tobago, uh, Guyana, and some others. And these are small societies, so the impact of murder reverberates throughout the society, and um, we have been, the, the countries have been grappling with attempts to, to deal with, with the high murder rate. Um, the high murder rate is only part of a bigger social problem concerning crime, and there is the problem of drug trafficking and of gun running, of, of guns coming into the country through unlawful means. So th these are much publicized um, aspects of Caribbean society. However, one of the ways in which Caribbean society, or at least the majority of people in Caribbean society, feel that the society should react to this social situation is through the maintenance of the death penalty. And that opens up another controversial area for the Caribbean. In, in fact, it is fair to say that when institutions look at the Caribbean human rights condition, sometimes there is a, a steady gaze on the death penalty question, though this is only one of a number of, of issues. But on the death penalty question, um, the Caribbean countries retain the death penalty uh, for murder. Uh, it varies. In some of the countries, the death penalty is retained for, for murder in all circumstances. So once you have been convicted of murder, the mandatory rule applies and you are to be executed. This applies in respect of Trinidad and Tobago and Barbados today. In some other countries, for example, in Jamaica, the death penalty uh, is not mandatory and it is to be imposed only in certain circumstances, cases of aggravated murder. For example, murder in the course of a felony, multiple murders, um, murder for hire. So in those circumstances, the judge has the discretion whether or not to apply the death penalty. This is true, as I said, for Jamaica, but it's also true of Antigua, St. Kitts, St. Lucia, St. Vincent, and so on, Grenada. Uh, but there is, within Caribbean societies, a counterforce which opposes the death penalty. And so uh, there is a debate that is going on. In the practice of the death penalty, uh, a, a number of decisions of the Privy Council should be noted. One is Pratt and Morgan versus the Attorney General of Jamaica. And in Pratt and Morgan, a, a case from 1993 to 1994, uh, the Privy Council, the highest court of the Caribbean, held that when a person is, has been kept on death row, for more than five years, a presumption arises that to execute that person would be inhuman or degrading punishment or treatment. So, in other words, if you have been sentenced to death and 
more than five years elapsed before you are executed, then you ought not to be executed um, after the period of five years. That position has been reinforced by a number of decisions of the Privy Council, including Neville Lewis and the Attorney General of Jamaica. So that's one constraint in respect of the death penalty, the five-year, the so-called five-year rule. Another constraint concerns the mandatory death penalty. As I, as I mentioned, uh, in some instances in the Caribbean, you do not have the mandatory death penalty, whereas in some you do. Why do you have it in some and not in others? Well, the savings clause. In a case called Lambert Watson, the Privy Council found that the Jamaican death penalty law was not saved because it was post-independence. And therefore, the mandatory law was struck down as inhuman or degrading a punishment. But in Trinidad and in Barbados, it was saved. Uh, see the cases of Boyce and Joseph and Charles Matthew. So that's why there are differences in respect of the law now, the savings clause. But where the death penalty is not mandatory, then what the Privy Council has said is that the death penalty can only be carried out in respect of the worst of the worst murder cases or the rarest of the rare. Which means that there are relatively few instances of, death, of the death penalty being carried out in practice. Now, although if you look at the literature, you will understand the reason for the steady gaze of the international community on the Caribbean. But there are relatively few. The last time Jamaica had the death penalty was in 1998, for example. Sorry, 1988, over 20 years ago. And in Trinidad, it was about 1998. I should move to another area. So the death penalty is controversial. Uh, inhuman or degrading punishment or treatment. I have mentioned the case of whipping and flogging and the position taken by the UN Human Rights Committee. Uh, this is a punishment which is rarely carried out, but it remains on the books. And so there is a political dis debate again as to whether it should be taken from the books uh, by legislation. Freedom of expression to move to a, a, another a human right. Caribbean states, I believe, enjoy substantial freedom of expression. If you look at the Caribbean media, you will see that uh, newspapers are, perceive themselves to be free, to be very critical of political leaders, of persons in the wider society. Um, but there is the other side, which is that the Caribbean law, though it safeguards freedom of expression, also indicates that there must be constraints. And so libel laws are applicable in the way that they are applicable in most of the common law world. There is, however, an important difference between the application of libel law, say, in the United States of America and in the Commonwealth Caribbean. In the United States of America, under the influence of New York Times and Sullivan, the approach is that if you make statements in respect of a public official, then you will not be liable for libel unless you, there can be shown actual malice or malice. 
Um, in the case of the Caribbean, that presumption is reversed in the sense that if you liable a public official uh, and you are sued, then you have to show truth or that it was a fair comment or one of the other defenses to libel. So there is a debate as to whether or not the presumption should be in the direction of the United States of America as against what we have had in the past through the British inheritance. This matter went to the Inter-American uh, Commission on Human Rights about three years ago in a case called Dudley Stokes versus Jamaica and the commission uh, maintained that the Jamaican law was consistent with the American Convention. The Jamaican law as it stands today uh, is consistent with the American Convention insofar as freedom of expression is concerned. Another point to make very quickly concerns non-discrimination. Um, the constitutions contain a provision which prohibits um, discrimination on various grounds. And in most of the Commonwealth Caribbean countries, that discrimination includes uh, non-discrimination on the basis of gender or sex. Uh, however, in the Jamaican constitution, that provision is not there. Um, and there is a proposal in respect of the Charter of Rights to make sure that non-discrimination on the basis of gender is given constitutional protection. Um, it's now protected through legislation, but not through the highest law of the country. In sum, therefore, in the Carib Commonwealth Caribbean, there is an active legal fraternity which seeks to ensure that human rights are protected. There is the perception and to some extent the reality that Caribbean states are within the mainstream of human rights law. The executive seeks to respect human rights norms in practice, but there are significant uh, issues which are open for debate in society. Uh, and I should note in passing that two significant issues which I haven't mentioned uh, are the level of police killings in some Caribbean countries and prison conditions. And it, it, it might just be said, um, <clears throat> countries in the Caribbean have sometimes been criticized by the United Nations for the level of police killings. The, the idea is that some of these killings are not done in self-defense. And in respect of prison conditions, uh, probably because of economic circumstances, but also because of um, history and, and cultural attitudes, prison conditions uh, tend to be quite poor. And again, UN human rights bodies have been critical of, of this. So then, um, there is a strong legal fraternity. There is an attempt to be in the mainstream. There are deficiencies. These deficiencies are publicly discussed, and there are attempts to ensure that these deficiencies are corrected over time. Um, the death penalty remains a subject of much contention, uh, but the societies have a tradition of respecting the rule of law. They are democratic societies that are trying to preserve hu the human rights of their indiv the individuals, and they are in large part attempting to respect the commitments they have accepted under the ICCPR, the ICSCR, 
and the various other UN human rights treaties. Thank you.